If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast, where each episode brings you interviews and ideas from nonprofit leaders. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, with another great conversation that will help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. We are bringing back one of our most popular guests for an encore performance, and I am truly excited to have another conversation with Kim Powell. Early last year, I think it was episode 26, we recorded a conversation about creating a 100-day launch plan for your new CEO. Now, this has been among our most downloaded episodes, and if you are one of the few who have not already listened to it, it is well worth the download. Today, we will be speaking to Kim about her new book, The CEO Next Door. The book is a culmination of an in-depth analysis of over 2,600 leaders drawn from a database of more than 17,000 CEOs and C-suite executives. It has over 13,000 hours of interviews behind it and two decades of experience in advising CEOs and executive boards. With her co-author, Elena Botello, Kim Powell overturns the myths about what it takes to get to the top and to succeed. So join me as we have an incredible conversation with Kim Powell. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Hey, Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dolph. I'm happy to be back. Hey, again, you are among our most downloaded episodes on episode 26, so I am thrilled you're back as well. Clearly, the listeners loved you, and and so you're back by popular demand. Now, in your new book, The CEO Next Door, I know that you do some myth-busting about what it takes to get to the top seat. Talk to me about some of those myths. 
Yeah, definitely. You first, we in our, or me in my day job, I interact with hundreds of current and aspiring CEOs and executive directors. And after all of those hours, countless hours, I started to really question the view of what does a CEO or executive director look and act like, at least in the U.S., the vast majority of our data is U.S.-based. Because frankly, the media presents a view, a, a view of what a good CEO looks like. And it's this larger than life, charismatic, perfect pedigree, like golden career path view. And you know, frankly, it just didn't resonate from what I experienced having walked through the career histories of hundreds of current and aspiring CEOs. And so it was one of the triggers actually for the origination of the book was to say, wait a minute, we have such a broad representation of leaders who are leading organizations in the U.S. Why don't we mind that? Why don't we unpack what those CEOs really look like and what it takes them to be successful? Because we had a hunch it is different than the, the picture we all hold in our heads of what a CEO or leader of an organization looks like. So a couple things actually came through in our research. I mean, the first, and for, for everyone out there who doesn't have a perfect pedigree, I was super glad to see that, frankly, we had more CEOs without a college degree in our data set than we had CEOs who had Ivy League degrees. Now, granted, we're still talking the poll, like 8% did not have a college degree in our data set. Only 7% had an Ivy League degree. And to me, that represents, I mean, these are people who generate the economic engine of our country and provide roles and provide the support infrastructure and the safety net in some cases for our broad population. And the reality is, you don't have to be perfect to be a successful leader. So for all those folks out there who feel like you need to, to have a certain resume, that actually didn't prove out in our data. So that was one big one for me. Another myth, the second one is, I had this impression that you know, if you're going to be a leader of an organization, you know it early on in your life. You've got a goal, you're climbing the ladder, you're you know, taking charge, and clearly you have this destination of being a CEO in mind. Well, in our, we did a, almost 100 interviews of CEOs and executive directors, and actually a little over 70% did not know they wanted to lead an organization. In some cases, did not want to lead an organization until they were much later in their careers the step or two prior to taking on an executive director or a CEO role. And to me, this was also enlightening you know, for those leaders out there who say, not sure that's for me, for whatever reason, that's pretty common. And often people recognize later in their career that it, it is something they want to take on. They do want to direct an organization and provide opportunities and help achieve goals. And it's not something that you needed to know early in your life or necessarily be working on early in your life. I would say the third myth that struck me in our research is you know, we all have this perception, at least I certainly did, that a CEO is a kind of a superhero figure 
right? This courageous setting direction. I'm going to swoop in and kind of be the savior and hero of this organization. And in reality, when we did our research, the weakest CEOs actually used a much higher ratio of the word I when they talk about their careers than they use the word we. The stronger CEOs, those that were higher performing, used the term we. We did this. We achieved that. It wasn't this individualistic hero. It was the, the high performers were those that unleashed the power of a team and talked about it as a we. And so that I thought was very interesting and somewhat counterintuitive to this kind of mental picture of a, of a CEO. And you know, the fourth I would say is there's a belief that you've got to be this larger than life extrovert, this charismatic, kissing baby, shaking hands, connecting with everyone, um, working the community, building those bridges. And interestingly, introverts were slightly more likely to exceed expectations in our data. So if you find yourself someone who recharges alone, don't have fear. <laughs> it certainly doesn't negatively impact performance, at least based on our data. And the the last one I would call out is I, I had this vision to get to the CEO seat and to be a leader driving an organization forward. You really had to not make mistakes. You had to be pretty um pretty successful all along the way. But in reality, when we looked at the research, uh, almost half, about 45% of CEOs in our study actually had a major career blow up. So this would be where they destroyed significant value or got fired, made a bad acquisition. Um, and so they went on, 78% of the CEO candidates that we looked at went on to win the top job and become CEO or executive director somewhere. And so these career blowups didn't negatively affect their career trajectory. Obviously, you probably can't blow up every role you've ever held, but I took that as a great piece of knowledge that it is okay to have some zigs and zags in your career, and you can still reach the top role in the organization if you so choose. So some people have career blowups. And when we look at the nonprofit sector, a significant percentage of executive directors are either forced out or fired, you know, so it's not 70%, but it's double digits, you know, so part of what I think I hear you saying is people have that career blow up, they're forced out, they're fired, there's a big issue, but maybe they take a step back and they evaluate what their role and responsibility was in that. Yes. And you know, what was fascinating about our research is those who reflected on those blowups as a failure, like they actually talked about it using the word failure, were less likely to be successful as a CEO. Those that talked about career blowups as a lesson learned or a mistake that was made that they have now corrected and done differently, those individuals were more likely to be successful. So there's also a mindset aspect here where are you looking at a blow up as a personal failure or are you, are you looking at it as an opportunity to learn and do better next time? The single biggest underused asset 
in our career life are our mistakes and things that don't work out. Um, and that, that came through in the research, which was great to see. I think also part of what I hear you saying is that there's no one real path to the CEO chair. So it's not like, okay, you come in as I'm going to make this up as a fundraiser or a salesperson. And then, you know, you move up and you're running a sales department or a fundraising department. And, you know, then you just keep moving up until you're the CEO. Correct. Actually, we did dive in and look at the career paths of those that made it to the CEO seat. And we specifically looked at those that made it to the CEO seat faster than the average to see what did they do? Did they do different things <laughs> to get there? Were there patterns we could all learn from? And there were a couple patterns that I think match exactly what you just mentioned, one of which is a significant proportion would take a smaller role or with a smaller organization to broaden their ownership over different functions. So like we call it go small to go big. Like often they took a step in their career that from the outside looks like, wow, was that a, was that a step back? But in reality, it was a step broad, if you will, to step out of whatever function they had been trained in potentially early in their career. And maybe they had oversight instead of just of HR, also finance or um, services and, you know, something else. So they might have moved to a smaller nonprofit or a smaller organization, but they actually sat over multiple functions so they could learn more broadly. So that was one of the markers that we saw for those that actually accelerated. And that's kind of counterintuitive, actually. I need to share with you that actually that made me feel good about something I did in my career, which I always kind of looked back on and felt like maybe it was a mistake. And so when I read that, I thought, well, okay, maybe what I did was not such a big mistake. I was running the grant department of a multimillion dollar organization, which ended up really being from my first job and it kind of grew into that. And then I went to a much smaller organization as their development director. They had a budget of like 400000 I took a 20% pay cut. And, you know, and looking back on that, I've always thought, gee, you know, Dolph, you took a 20% pay cut. And, you know, and if that 20% would have compounded over the 20 years since then, I would have been making more money over that 20-year period. But when I read, okay, you know, that sometimes people take a career move that might not make sense on paper, but helps them get the skills or the experience needed to then move up, Admittedly, it made me feel a lot better. <laughs> well, and you probably built some new muscles and some new learning. And so that ultimately propelled you to where you are today, which is probably worth a lot more money. <laughs> it's funny because like apparently I'm doing therapy through podcasting. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm working through my own stuff as part of having this podcast. Kim, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some more of those behaviors that can propel someone to the CEO position. Sounds great. The Successful Nonprofits Podcast is produced by the Goldenberg Group as part of our mission to provide board development, strategic planning, and interim leadership to help nonprofits thrive in a competitive environment. Through my consulting practice, I try to make a big impact on the nonprofit sector, and I do that through this podcast, through a very active blog, and also through a print mailing list. That's right, an old-fashioned, delivered by United States Pony Express, comes through the mail, print mailing list. We're starting to work on the spring issue now, and it'll probably be coming out in the next couple of months. So if you would like to receive it, 
drop me a line through the website at goldenberggroup.com and I would love to put a stamp on your newsletter and make sure it gets to your office or your home. Hey, welcome back, Kim. So I know you have talked about the behaviors in the book that can propel someone forward to the CEO position. What are some more of those behaviors? So there were, going back to the research, four behaviors. And the great thing about these generically, before I go into them specifically, is that they're all buildable. These are not intrinsic things that you're born with. And if you're not tough luck, they are all buildable skills and behaviors. So granted, you know, new habits are hard, (laughs) but old habits are hard to break. New habits are hard to build. However, I was very happy to see they weren't intrinsic things like fundamental IQ or things of that nature. So the four things that we saw statistically defined high performing CEOs are the following. The first is they're decisive. So the first behavior is all about decisiveness. And this is actually about the speed of decisions. So act deciding with speed and conviction, not necessarily, you know, having the perfect, highly analytical, accurate decision, which, you know, frankly, being a recovering uh, management consultant who loves data, this is good for me to hear. (laughs) And, you know, the litmus test we heard over and over again is, look, If you as the CEO are not making rapid decisions, there's absolutely no way your organization can, and you will be slowing down overall achievement of the impact you want to make on your community or your customers. So that was the first one. And decisive CEOs were 12 times more likely to be high-performing CEOs. So that is the first. And the litmus test I'm using now personally is, look, If I had to decide in 30 seconds, what's my decision on whatever the issue is? And if I feel like I can decide, then I almost always discount the value of further information and really force myself to move. And the reality is sometimes I'll be wrong, right? And you have to learn from that, apply that learning and make a better decision and train that muscle to essentially be more accurate. But you do it by making lots and lots of decisions more quickly. Let me just make sure I understand the number on that. So you said that CEOs that can be decisive are 12 times, not 12%, but 12 times more likely. So 1,200% more likely. Wow. Okay. That's a big number. In the high performing camp. Yeah. And so behind the scenes, what we had to do to collect this information, we had to go back to boards of directors and ask for performance data for these CEOs. Did these CEOs meet or did they exceed or did they not meet the performance expectations in the role? And so we had some viewpoint, even in non-public or non-profit organizations, whether the CEO was successful. And so that was critical information to then run against all of the assessment data, all the behavioral data that we've gathered over 10 years. So that was the first. The second behavior, and this one, on first glance, I was like, that's so boring. But 
The second behavior is about being reliable. It's about delivering reliably. And interestingly, this one had the strongest impact on being high performing. So if you deliver reliably and you show up reliably, you're 15 times more likely to be in the high performing CEO camp. So it is really impactful. It was also the only behavior that we saw correlated with hiring in addition to performance. So we also looked separately at what gets you hired from what leads you to be high performing. And we can talk about the fact that those aren't always correlated. (laughs) You'd expect them to be the same. You'd like them to be the same, but often what gets you hired is not necessarily what drives high performance. In this case, that's not true. Being relentlessly reliable both helps you get hired and helps you be high performing. And this is really around ensuring you have a repeatable system for reliability, the right rhythms, the right communication cadences, the right metrics, the right dashboards. But it also importantly means as a CEO, you are proactively setting expectations with those around you. And that allows you to then deliver against those expectations. If you let other people define success and set expectations for you, man, it's a lot harder to control and potentially a lot harder to deliver against. So the CEOs that were successful really took the reins and said, this is what I think we can do. This is how I think we can do it. And went out proactively to set those expectations with others. And the other thing I saw in the highly successful CEOs was they held themselves relentlessly accountable. We call it like radical personal accountability. These CEOs would publish their 360 feedback from their teams across their whole organizations. And they would do things that really stuck out as, I want you, my organization and my board to hold me accountable. And I'm not afraid to you know, hang out my dirty laundry. And the reason they do that is because then they can hold their teams accountable and in an open, transparent manner. And so I thought, you know, to me, this is one where it does make sense. At first blush, it feels boring. (laughs) Reliability doesn't sound very sexy, but it is critically important to delivering high performance in the role. Um, The third is around engaging for impact. So this is all about how do I help move my different constituencies who all have different goals, different motivations? How do I move them towards an aligned collective objective? That's really hard to do. Um, The CEOs that do it really well, frankly, are not relating for affinity. They're not relating to be liked. They're relating to move this group or this individual to a given goal. And frankly, it means that they have a clear view of intent. Like, what are we trying to do in this relationship, in this, in this meeting, in this communication, in this interaction? Where are we trying to go and how does it get us further towards the goals or the impact we're trying to create on our communities? And the last is adapting proactively. So the successful CEOs are proactive about what is changing in my communities, in my environments, in my external world, in my competitive set, and they proactively seek to change and adapt their organizations to the needs that are changing around them. And the CEOs who who do this well were seven times more likely to be high-performing CEOs. I wasn't surprised to see this given the rapid changes in technology, you know, the disruption that's happening in various industries. 
this rang true to me. I think when you peel under the cover, the CEOs who do this really well are spending more time thinking out into the future than other CEOs. So we saw them double the amount of time. We did some time studies. We saw them double the amount of time they were spending thinking one year out. And fundamentally, as this, you're probably in a smaller organization as the CEO, the only person thinking a year out, how is my service population or how are my customers or how is my competitive set changing? And you're probably in a position to tap diverse information sources in a way that others in your organization might not be in a position to do. And so it's really your job to be looking ahead and then guiding the organization proactively to change. It's interesting because I also think that decisiveness and that future forward adaptability are really closely linked. No, it's definitely true. And I think some of the situations, so for example, I look at nonprofit leaders who are in smaller organizations who also often don't have a lot of resources. And then the second category, entrepreneurs. Again, smaller organizations, not a lot of resources. Those two groups are actually in a great position to build both the decisive muscle and the adaptation muscle because of a few things. Decisiveness because you got to move pretty quickly or you're going to go out of business. <laughs> I mean, you're, it's almost, you know, you are almost in a fire every day and it really trains that muscle of decision-making. And then on the other hand, for adaptation, you don't have a lot of resources around you. So if you're not ahead of the curve, again, you have this pressure of how do I secure funding? Where's the funding going? Or you know, where's my competitive set going? Does my product fit the needs of the customer set or the market I'm trying to serve? If you don't stay ahead of that, again, you're out of business. You've got no cushion. So I do think those two groups are in a position to build those behaviors more readily than if you might be buried in a very large institution and, and don't actually have that sea of change and lack of resources around you. Now, I know in preparation for this book, you did an ungodly number of interviews with CEOs. <laughs> Was there one that really stood out to you? And could you share with us why that one stood out with you? Maybe, obviously, you want to keep the person anonymous, but you know, could you share with us a little bit about that interview? Sure. I mean, there's, gosh, there's a lot. I will say on the macro level, I was surprised by how motivating these conversations were. And it was part of what was the spirit behind the book, actually, which is, gosh, if we can unpack what these CEOs are really like, the mistakes they made, the realness, the genuineness, the things that they wrestle with in their heads, maybe more people will want to be leaders. And I found myself being very motivated, like hanging up the phone, being like, oh my gosh, maybe I can be a CEO. I probably shouldn't be a CEO. But I felt that way, that excitement, that motivation, the sense that, gosh, you know, you can make a difference even if you're not perfect or look a certain way or have a certain background. I will say the interviews were really, really motivating. The one that stands out, I interviewed a leader. I can give some broad stroke description. So he's on his third CEO gig. He currently runs broadly a fashion company. I would call it mid-market. So it's a decent sized company. It is for profit. And he talked a lot about, he was very open, number one, about things that went wrong. And frankly, he got seduced by a CEO role 
that he he knew wasn't the right fit and he couldn't say no. And ultimately it ended in his early dismissal. And he reflects back on that, that had he done a better job being conscious about his fit to the role, that he could have sidestepped that and ended up in a better place more quickly, put it that way. Certainly would have avoided some pain along the way. But he was very open about what he learned from that process and how he now basically articulates a scorecard for himself. What is the type of role, the type of CEO role where he can be most effective? And when he looks for future roles, he uses that as a kind of a litmus test. He does his own interview, counter interview, if you will. One of the things we found is fit to the scorecard, that particular role, what is the needed results? What are the objectives, the measurable objectives? You having fit to what is needed is actually one of the biggest drivers of overall success for a given role. And oftentimes either we're too busy or we really feel like this is the only role that will come by It'll be too presumptuous to ask too many questions and we don't get underneath. Is this really going to be a good fit for me? And we stumble into roles where we're not at our best. Typically those don't end well. (laughs) And so I, I really appreciated his raw honesty and how he learned from that experience so that we can all benefit from that learning. Thank you for sharing that because I do think that all of us, myself and all of our listeners can benefit from that. Have a scorecard, have a grid of what a good fit looks like for you and feel really confident that it's a good fit before you walk in. Correct. That's partially culture. It's partially boss fit. There's a variety of things you can look at. Well, Kim, before we let you go, I want to ask you the off the map question. And, you know, we started this interview with me confessing that I actually was not sure what the off the map question was going to be. And oftentimes I do have a sense and other times I have to wait for the muse. And this time the muse gave me something and hopefully it's something good. I am assuming that as you or your office was reaching out to prospective CEOs to ask if you could interview them, I am assuming that you got some no's in response. People said, too busy, whatever. So what did you learn from those no's and what were some of the best ways, like most diplomatic when I say best, most diplomatic ways that some people turn down an offer to be interviewed? That's a great off the map question. I love it, Dolph. I have not been asked that ever. (laughs) I hate to presume that someone has told you no, but I'm assuming that somewhere along the way. No, it definitely (laughs) happens. I mean, the reality, sometimes, so they fell into two camps. Frankly, we didn't get that many no's. Our access was pretty good and working with boards, affords us an entree that is harder to say no to (laughs) as a CEO. (laughs) If your board member suggests it, you're more likely to do it. So we did have that tailwind pushing us forward, but we did get a couple categories of no's. One was a point in time no, meaning we would hear back that they are in the middle of fill in the blank, a major acquisition getting delisted from the stock market, you know, some (laughs) massive change in their business where they just knew for a six month period, they had to be laser focused and just not distracted with anything on the outside. So that was one category. And I think that also fits into the category of like gentle, appropriate, democratic ways of saying no. It's clearly understandable that not everyone's accessible when you need them. Right. Yeah. 
And then the second category that we got was a more categorical, I don't do that. (laughs) I'm not sure if you describe that as democratic or not. Like I don't eat fish, so I'm not going to have fish with you. Exactly. I'm a vegetarian, but in this case, it was a (laughs) (laughs) non-interbutarian. So we did have a few individuals that they just, you know, choose to not be participative in outside activities. And they framed it not specifically on interviews, but some CEOs are really critical on how they spend their time, especially large public CEOs. So I respect that. They need to be clear. They do one public board or one nonprofit board or however many. They have very clear lines in the sand around time allocation. And frankly, we did not fit in their priority set. And I respect that. Kim, that is a great way to kind of end the podcast today to learn some some nice and polite ways that people would say no to you, even though it was infrequent, thankfully. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am grateful that you shared so much of what you learned as part of researching and writing this book. I cannot encourage our listeners enough to go to ceonextdoorbook.com and to order a copy of this book. It is an incredible book. Whether you are already a CEO, whether you want to be a CEO, or whether you're just interested in career development, maybe you want to be a CFO or a program manager, there will be things in this book that will help you achieve your career goals. So, Kim, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Were you unable to write down the URL ceonextdoorbook.com because you just gave your last pen to the Smithsonian Institution? Fear not. You can always go to successfulnonprofits.com to get that URL, although it's pretty simple, ceonextdoorbook.com. And while you're online, be sure to subscribe on your podcast streamer of choice and rate and review the podcast. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight that will help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.